0: Hello all and welcome to Footy Time, it is the 11th of July 2022 and that means that round 17 is in the books, 6 rounds to go and a lot happening that we need to discuss. Um, Where do we start? This round was absolutely insane, (laughs) absolutely insane, Uh, we had a couple of upsets, we had many comebacks and... We had the ladder positions change like musical chairs once again. Uh, Anyone who seems to think that they know how this final eight and top four is going to finish come the end of the year, I'd love to know what the secret is, because there's just no way of predicting this right now. It's just going to be a different proposition week to week, and yeah, it's really just a case of wait and see every single week. Um, There's no breakaway leaders anymore, and... We're just going to really have to look at each game, each big time heavyweight game as it comes, because they're all just going to be little parts of the journey. Uh, when we finally get to September, are you in? Are you out? Are you in the top four? Are You out? Are you in the top eight? Are you out? You know, it's just going to be like that. And yeah, that's really It's it's really hard for people to understand that, but that's how this season is going. It is literally the closest season I think we've had since around 2018, and. That really wasn't anywhere near us, as much of a logjam as as this one is. But that's the, the frustrating part is we have to wait and see. There's no predicting anything right now. Who doesn't love a good comeback in AFL footy? There is nothing better than when your team is rallying and the momentum is fully in your direction. And you're just kicking goal after goal, and suddenly the belief comes in, you know, can we pinch this game? It's one of the best feelings. And in this sport in particular, it's just such a good feeling when you're coming back. Whether you end up winning or not, it's just such a good feeling, especially if you're at the game. However, a great comeback almost always coincides with a great come apart. Yeah, pretty much. On Saturday afternoon, we saw a spirited North Melbourne battle hard for 3 quarters against the informed Tires before totally running out of legs in the 4th quarter and being overrun by 7 points. Did North run out of gas or are they just no good? The answer is both. <laughs> Sorry, but it is. North built up that lead on clearances and they were they looked very impressive. This was some of the best football I've seen this team play all year. Guys like Davis Uniac, um, yeah, they were just getting really busy in the middle. Um, Mackay, Ben Mackay, safe as houses down back, was taking some great marks. One of the best games I think I've ever seen him play for the club. And to think they actually tried him out forward a few weeks ago. No, this guy's a defender and a bloody good one in the making. So they looked very, very good. Um, But as soon as that last quarter started and they were 26 points up, Collingwood, Two goals in the first two minutes. Momentum swung back their way in an instant, and it all started with the centre clearances. I could not see North doing anything to win this game back, to be honest. (laughs) It's ridiculous, I know, but two minutes into this game, I just thought, if Collingwood don't come back and win this game, then they're a disgrace. (laughs) I just thought uh, everything was going their way. They were winning every centre clearance, which was unheard of in the third quarter. They weren't. They could not get their hands on the ball, but they were getting everything out of the middle here. I thought that if North could have just managed a little bit of a lucky goal at one point, like the the, uh, the Coleman-Jones snap was such a great effort, but it just didn't quite make it. If he could have snagged that one, then he might have had a chance at arresting the momentum. But there was just nothing that North could do. They just don't have the ability, and they didn't have the legs as either late in this game to execute anything any sort of single act that could help get the game back on North terms Um, obviously full credit to Collingwood it was a good comeback but it wasn't a great comeback let's not beat around the bush here it wasn't a great comeback Collingwood did what they had to do okay they did what they had to do they were well beaten for much of that second half and even some of the second quarter Uh, but they did come back they got it done well done to them but yeah I just um, I didn't have much hope, and it's a shame because I think pretty much everyone in Australia that wasn't a Collingwood fan was really hoping North could get up here for David Noble, and it was just a real shame that they just that all they could manage was two behinds in the last quarter to Collingwood six goals. Um, so that was that one, and a very good comeback, but a very good come apart from North in the end. But that is not the comeback that I wanted to talk about this weekend, although I just did. The comeback that I want to talk about, yep, you guessed it. It's the Gold Coast Suns and Tigers game on Saturday night. Well, they've done it again. Pretty much one week to the day, 10 years ago, when Carmichael Hunt broke Richmond Hearts at Kazaley Stadium. And uh, there was the craziest two minutes in football or whatever that phrase that Paul Roos Coined on on the couch was, um, <laughs> wow! What a game! What a game! Just another game to show you why this sport is the greatest sport in the world. Uh, there were a lot of examples of why no lead is ever safe in this sport, and if you do rest on your laurels, you do so at your peril. This happened in the Collingwood and North game. Uh, honestly. Yeah, that, that lead, the that 26-point lead was down to uh, 14 points in literally the first two minutes. It just <laughs> makes it look a bit different, doesn't it? Well, in this game, oh, they... I, I'm not quite sure what the scoreworm was officially, but... Um, no, actually, no, screw that. Let's get the scoreworm up. <laughs> Let's have a look at it. Okay. So... I you know, I think everyone's got their sort of their own inbuilt mechanism to know when a game is over, when their team is home uh I quite often give my team <laughs> I, I I don't call games early ever if it's my team um yeah, I think in the grand final I, I needed at least. Two goals to feel like it was home in that last quarter in the grand final, and even then you still, you know, it's depending on the team you're it for. If you're used to teams coming back and overrunning you, <laughs> it's no lead's ever safe. But um, everyone, I think everyone has their own sort of compass on this, and I think that when you're about well, you know, over three goals up with about seven minutes to go, I think that you should never lose a game from that position. But let's have a look at this scoreworm. So, with about nine minutes left in the game, Jack Revolt kicked his third goal to put the Tigers up by 20-odd points. And then about a minute and a half later, they added two behinds to that. So, with seven minutes and 34 seconds left, the Tigers are up by 23 points. You would assume the game's done, but that's definitely not what happened. Um, it came. Uh, son's got a thrust forward and it ended up with Sam Day, who put his goal through from directly in front. And the lead was down to 17 points. But then, like, even then, we get down to the four-minute mark <laughs> of this last quarter, four minutes to go. The Tigers are still up by 17 points. 17 points before Matty Rowe gets it and kicks a clutch goal from just inside the 50. and. All of a sudden, there's 11 points in it with three minutes and 45 seconds to go. At this point, you are thinking it could still be game on because all of a sudden, you know, if you go by that Lee Matthews rule, all of a sudden, it's, a, it's more than a goal a minute. There's three minutes for them to kick two goals here. And it's just crazy because they started getting more attacks in. They started getting more and more clearances. They even had a chance to get it into Ben Ainsworth with under three minutes to go and Ainsworth Fluffed his kick to the right. (laughs) A very gettable shot. And he missed it with about 2 minutes and 15 to go. Game over, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. How many chances do you need to shut this game down, Tiges? We get to 1 minute and 20 seconds left. They scramble a ball forward. It comes to the back of the pack. Marvio almost. (laughs) Well almost stuffs it up but he has a lot of trouble picking it up he ends up soccering it off the ground and all of a sudden the Suns are within four points under a minute to go there's about 40 I'd say 49 seconds left or something and all that really means is you got one shot at this ball out of the centre you have one look and roll the dice so well that's what the Suns did they they got it out uh, yep straight away and it was dropped by Dylan Grimes. The ball is surged forward again to, I think, Holman, who got a great gather and just hoiked it back beyond the square to the point post and into the arms of Sam Day, who takes a great mark. Uh, I don't think the cameraman was even assuming that Day was going to play on there. I think everyone in the stadium thought he was going to take this back, but he played on, kicked it back inboard to Noah Anderson, who had a much better look at goal. And Noah Anderson, with nerves of steel, he was walking in as the siren was blaring. He didn't stop to take it back and take as much time as he needed. He just kept going on his run-up and just dobbed it right through the middle. Nerves of steel, as I said. And what a great win for the Suns. They keep their finals hopes alive. And, yeah, what a fantastic game. I think comebacks are a belief. And if you've got enough guys on the team believing and rallying, then the comeback win is more often inevitable than not. But as we said before, there were a lot of things that Richmond had to do wrong for this to even be a chance. Um, As I said, Dylan Grimes, probably the safest hands in the AFL, really, and he dropped two crucial marks that led to Gold Coast goals. <laughs> <It> helped them in <laughs> their way back. Uh, it's, it's just a great leveler, isn't it? It just shows you can have the best player at a certain thing in the heat of the moment. When that pressure's up, when that momentum's happening, oh, it just brings back the legends to mere mortals sometimes and there's really <laughs> no other way to explain it. Um, So it also puts a dent in Richmond's top four chances, but they're not dead and buried. But yeah, that, that's three close losses uh, for Richmond now. Uh, in the last month or so it's yeah it's a bit of a worry it's a bit of a worry that they can't shut a game down like that when it's uh, getting yeah when the other team's getting a bit of a run on Um, but yeah fantastic win well, that's why we love AFL footy uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask an honest question here Took Miller honest question can he win the Brownlow? I mean 27 disposals, 16 contested, 4 tackles, 13 clearances. The guy does this every single week. And his goal was also very important for the Suns. The Suns are winning games regularly now. I think it's time that Took's name gets mentioned a bit more in the Brownlow front. I mean, there's none of this, oh, but he's playing for a weak side now. He's going to get overlooked by the Clayton Olivers or the Cripses or the Brayshaws or whoever. I mean, no. I think Miller's name needs to be up there just as much as the others. He is so crucial to his team right now. And there's no rule that says you need to be in the top four to be a chance at this. I think if you're making the eight or if you're close to making the eight, there's been plenty of examples where teams just win enough games to get a Brownlow medalist enough three voters in a season. I, I think there's been plenty of examples like that. So I think we're going to hear his name mentioned a lot more when it comes to this, because he's he's been so damn good, and it's now contributing to a lot of wins for the Suns, so yeah, we'll just wait and see, wait and see on that. I don't want to talk about this, I really don't want to talk about this, I'm sick of hearing about this, I know it's an important issue at the moment, and people are getting annoyed, but I really just don't, I don't want to talk about this, but I feel like I had to. I feel like it's important because it's going to be talked about. It's the head high tackle and the ducking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been talking about it all season. The frustration with ducking and leaning into high tackles is reaching fever pitch. Former players in the media are now demanding that we do something about it and that we need to get it out of the game immediately. We've got to stamp this out because the game is looking bad. When we talk about the game being so hard to umpire these days, I think this has to be one of the most difficult elements of umpiring, is this high tackle rule. Here you have a rule that says you can't tackle a player above the shoulders. Sounds easy. Pay the ones that do get uh, tackled above the shoulders and don't pay the ones that don't. <laughs> um, so the umpire just needs to look out for those stray tackles that are around the neck, yeah? <laughs> yeah. The game was seemingly played in good spirits for a hundred years, with no one ever dreaming to duck or drop at the knees to make a regular tackle slip up high, yeah. And all of a sudden, now in the last ten years or twenty years, uh, a captain at Geelong and some blonde guy at Collingwood comes along, and uh, they're doing it a lot. And we've got a big, big problem—a big problem all of a sudden, the umpires now have to decipher whether the tackle is high and or if the player being tackled milked it. So, yeah, if you couldn't tell, I was being slightly sarcastic there for the last minute or so. I find it really hard to believe that this problem has just come about now. (laughs) I mean, the era of television and replays, it has put the magnifying glass on this kind of behavior. Uh, I've got no doubt that this would have happened in the past, and if the umpire was conned, we all just put it down to a bad umpiring mistake and moved on in with our lives. If there were repeat offenders, I'm sure that after a while, the umpire saw that these guys were repeat offending, and they weren't given the free kicks. Um, you know, it's probably just one of those things that we don't remember now, because it's not worth talking about. <laughs> Only if someone went to... I don't know, Glenferry Oval or Whitten Oval or Princess Park or Victoria Park uh, every single Saturday and saw this happening all the time, those are the only people that would remember a guy who did it on a regular basis. Th- that's probably the case. Um, And that's pretty much what happened on Saturday afternoon with Jack Ginneman. I mean, he's quite good at drawing this kind of free kick. The bad karma that comes with this is that he is gaining a reputation for it. And now, when he's copping some actual high tackles, I, in, in the game on Saturday, I saw two that I thought could easily have been paid high if it was another player. Um, but the umpires are onto it, and they're just calling play on. I think in one instance, they even pinged him for holding the ball. So, I'm actually really struggling for a clear opinion on this one way or another, to be honest. And other than players you know, that exploit the rules... You know, they'll get that bad karma eventually. Uh, And you'll see umpires not paying them the free kicks that they may be able to get. Uh, A bit like in soccer, when you see a, a striker diving all the time for a penalty, after a while, they get a reputation for diving and they might actually get a clear foul on them committed and the ref's just having none of it, telling them to get up. So the answer of what to do about all this ducking for free's eludes me. I'm keen to hear all your views. I mean, time 22 at gmail.com if you've got any suggestions or things that we could implement. But what can we actually do to stamp out playing for head-high freeze? I mean, we can't just go around and say that a player is no longer allowed to drop at the knees anymore. Because what if they are legitimately trying to, you know, jiggle their way out of a contest? And, you know, we love all the balance and Um, agility work from a lot of, you know, players and midfielders and goal sneaks, uh, you know. uh, We love all that stuff. So what are we going to do? Just tell them that they can't drop on the knees and bend down anymore and crouch. We can't, can't do that. I mean, but then again, we can't have a rule that says you aren't allowed to tackle around the neck. And then you have all these other tackles just going unrewarded because how stupid does that look to the newcomers of the game? If we tell a newcomer who's watching the game... You're not allowed to tackle around the neck, and then we start seeing a whole bunch of people, you know, dropping at the knees. And oh, but that, that that guy got tackled around the neck. How come that's not a free kick? Oh, yeah, it's it's not in that circumstance. No, um, yeah, because he um, he, dro- he died, he died. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe that's fine. Maybe I'm overthinking this, but um, I just think that it's a little silly that you've got this head eye tackle rule, which is meant to be for safety. It's meant to be to protect the player, and all of a sudden you don't pay half of them. Or it may not be half, but you don't pay them because you think that someone's, I don't know, trying to con the system. Um, I don't know. How about this off the top of my head? How about this? A high tackle is only a high tackle if the player has completely straight legs or their knees are on the ground. So therefore, you've got a guy who gathers the ball on their feet, but their legs are straight, so they haven't dropped their knees. Or they're trying to fight for the ground ball, they're on their knees, they're in a contest, and that way you can't just have some guy come up behind them and you know put on the Steiner recliner and rip their head off. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, look, I don't know. I, I've literally, I have not given this any thought at all. I literally just thought that off the top of my head. Uh, so, but then again, you've got the same problem. You have to explain the head eye tackle rule to people. you got to go, well, it's that. Well, if they're dropping at the knees, uh, that's not a high tackle. I mean, we need it to be clear-cut, don't we? Um, it makes it complicated, but it's just a brainstorm. I'm not, I'm not hearing a lot of other suggestions right now other than, you know, um, I don't know. I still don't buy into this idea of paying a free kick against a, a, a diver or a, a dropper, a knee dropper. I don't think that that's... I just think it adds another element. So you've now got a punishment rather than... Uh, so the guy might have accidentally... Uh, well, I don't know. There could be many reasons why a guy drops at the knees, and all of a sudden we want to now punish him with a free kick and add another thing that the umpire needs to worry about. Um, yeah, I just don't think that's right. There's been many people calling for fines or suspending them. I think that that's what they need to do more. What while, while we're at it, why don't we just call out these offenders and actually sanction them? Give them those fines. Every time, just go, look, you're doing this too much. Here's a fine... You do this again, there's a point system, whatever. You do that again, it's a one game suspension. Like, we're not gonna tolerate it anymore. It's just you know, we're not gonna tolerate it anymore. It's just hogwash. So let's actually do that. I- instead of paying so much attention on the descent rule and there, which is, you know, look a good initiative. Why don't we do the same thing with this? Let's stamp this out and just go, if you keep doing this, you're gonna get fined, you're going you're gonna get suspended. And bottom line. But yeah, share your thoughts with this because I'm sick to death of hearing about this and I'm sick to death of hearing people complain about it and not proposing any solutions. Like actual solutions. Ones that would actually like possibly make sense. Anyway, yeah, let us know. It's time for everyone's new favorite segment. Top 4 and Top 8 Watch. Alright, and let's get down to business for this week. So, everyone is saying just how tight the ladder is up the top down to 8th spot. That's no news, isn't it? It is my privilege to tell you all that these people are right. (laughs) This time last year, there was a 5-game gap between 1st and 8th place. This year, there is just a 3-game separating 1st and 8th place teams. One thing I know for sure is this. There is way too much football to go to be predicting premiers, top four positions, or even top eight positions. But much like when Luke blew up the Death Star, it is going to be a case of who can beat who to the punch first. When Round 23 is played, are you in or are you out? That goes for everything. Top four, top eight, whatever. And that is pretty much it. So Freya had a great win over St Kilda at Marvel. We put the challenge down to them and they showed that they are actually a decent threat on the road. They're now back up to equal top. Collingwood keep up the pressure on the teams in that top four and the Blues are back with a smashing of West Coast keeping their top four hopes alive. While Brisbane could be in a slight spot of bother with a bunch of their players missing with COVID and the Bombers throwing a spanner in their works. The team we're going to focus on this week though is Geelong. On Thursday night, we had the much-awaited first versus second clash at GMHBA Stadium, and it was the Cats coming out victors in what was a very strong and assertive performance over the Ds. The Cats beat Melbourne at their own game, closing off all the defensive exits, playing a high-pressure brand of football, and probably most impressively smashing the Ds in the clearances and contested ball. Had Melbourne had won down in Geelong... I have no doubt that the media would be talking about the back-to-back flags possibilities for the Ds again, and that would dominate the headlines. However, the Cats have blown this competition wide open now, with three teams equal on top on 48 points, and three teams just behind them on 44 points. I think it's fair to say now that any of those top three can go on to win the flag this year, with the other teams not that far behind, either if they get on a good run, or if they Beat the teams above them. So, Geelong is the team in focus this week. Uh, Where can the Cats finish in 2022? That's the question. Well, this is, uh, yeah. We've said in the past that Geelong have had a bit of a cushy draw to go, but is it really that cushy? Let's have a look at it. So, the next game is against the Blues at the MCG. I think this game is going to be a cracker. And I would say that this is the game of the round. The following week, they have Port Adelaide at Adelaide Oval. The power have been in some good form of late. So this one isn't a gimme. They then take on the Bulldogs again at a GMHBA. So they really should win that. Then it's St. Kilda at a GMHBA. So depending on which St. Kilda turns up, that could either be a gimme or a toughie. But it's too far out to tell and St. Kilda... Has really been a Jekyll and Hyde team this year. <laughs> they then have Gold Coast Coaster Metricon, tough one. And they then finish with a guaranteed win down at GMHBA against the West Coast Eagles. They really should abolish that game because it's gonna be it's gonna be bulldust. Um they should just give Geelong an eighty point win right now in that game, I say. But um yeah, I'm gonna say that I think the Cats are a lock for four more wins this season at least. Uh, All home games will be wins, plus another one minimum, uh, but most likely two. This gives them 16 wins at least, and a top two finish, I would think. Uh, But as they say, there's a lot of football to be played. We're going to stick with that game, the Geelong and Melbourne game. The question is, how much did that game tell us? About these sides. Um, So, back to the Cats, just temporarily, because this was an excellent performance, both in and out of the coaching box. The speed of ball movement that Geelong plays with now is almost unrecognisable to what they were playing with last season. It's obvious that over the off-season, Chris Scott identified the way that they were going to transition the ball because the way they had been doing it just wasn't getting it done against the The new leaders of the competition, so to speak. The Melbournes, the Bulldogs, uh, yeah, the Ports, uh, all these teams. They managed to nullify Max Gorn as well. I know Max was probably a bit underdone, but they really kept it away from the big man who only had 14 touches and no marks on the night. But here's the most impressive part about this performance. Their twin towers, Jeremy Cameron and Tom Hawkins, uh, you know, the ones that are 2-3 and three in the common myrtle race, they had one goal between them. Even in-form player Tyson Stingle only kicked one goal, and that was in junk time. Everything else appeared to be midfield goals, with plenty of looks from others that could chip in as well. Now, that is pretty impressive. That's a massive plus for the Cats. Whether this is something that can be repeated in finals is another story, but for now, I was very impressed with the spread of goal kickers question is now, how much can Geelong take out of this brilliant win over the D's? Well, the answer to that is a bit. There is a bit they can take out of it. You know, you've just knocked off the reigning premiers, you've beaten them at their own game, you've done it without stars firing, and now you're on top of the ladder with a draw that they have that isn't the worst draw in the world. Um, It looks like they're going to cruise into another top four berth and another shot at that elusive flag. But why have I only said a bit? Oh boy, cynical Johnny's here and he's just salty about Melbourne losing. No, that couldn't be further from the truth. Geelong were and are the better team right now. When you look at how much the Cats can take out of that game, I think there is definitely a bit that they can. But if that is their best shot and they think that will just repeat itself when it comes to the pointy end, then they will have another thing coming. I'm sure that's not what they're thinking, by the way. They know they've got to keep improving, but if they think that that is the standard when it comes to finals, then they're wrong. Let's go some of the things that I covered in the lead up to this game last week. So we know that the AFL really likes Thursday night football and quite a lot of people I know do too. Uh, I don't quite get the buzz myself, but it's here to stay and let's try our best to embrace it. So Thursday night was fixtured with both teams playing the previous Saturday and coming off five-day breaks. Now, when a game is fixtured like this, with both teams coming off that break, five days, the first thing I look at immediately is the last game that those two teams played in. I said it last week, and I banged on about it to friends all this week. They would have been sick of hearing me say it. But Melbourne were coming off a very physical and grueling encounter in Adelaide against the Crows. That particular game went down to the fourth quarter and the D's copped a few knocks in that game that didn't help. Michael Hibbard, Christian Petrarca, it ended up being a real ice to the bruises game afterwards. Geelong, on the other hand, had just come off a very cruisy game against one of the poorest teams we've seen in a decade in North Melbourne. They won that game by over 100 points and never really seemed to break much of a sweat. It was basically a bruise-free training run. Let's not escape that. So, none of these instances are excuses, not at all. Just like Geelong's mystery virus wasn't used as an excuse in the prelim last year. But it does have an impact on the standard of the game to an extent, especially when it comes to Melbourne's cornerstone element of being their ability to apply pressure and get in the face of the opposition and cause turnovers. I thought for a 1v2 game, the standard of this game was quite lacklustre and there were so many skill errors. From both sides. From both sides. There just happened to be more from Melbourne. And that stacks up with what I'm saying. Couple this with the theory that probably both teams are loading at the moment, training-wise, and there you have it. A very poor standard of skills in a game like this. And a bunch of very tired-looking players at the end. Little things like Geelong's brilliant tackle rate on the night, which was spectacular. Something like that. Like I said, it's not an excuse, but fatigue can make it just that bit harder to power out of those tackles with heavy legs. And also, looking on the other side, how about Geelong's inaccuracy? Geelong were extremely inaccurate on the night and probably should have won by more. I'm making the case that the fatigue Geelong was suffering from, although maybe not as much as Melbourne's, caused them these skill errors in front of goal. You'd have to look at it again, but both sides just had a lot of tired-looking kicks, in my opinion. I also mentioned in the lead-up that I thought both teams were not going to be going hell for leather to win this one and that it was more likely they would feel each other out and uh, just let their their current footy do the talking. So they were trying to win, but I don't think the coaching staff was going to pull out all the stops and bring out all their big moves. It was strange to see Melbourne not change up anything when it came to uh, the ball movement. I thought it was a bit strange that they kept, continuing to kick down the line I don't know why they didn't switch it up uh, only Simon Goodwin can answer that uh, so that was a bit strange but it is a bit of a theory I just think that maybe they didn't show them their best at this point I mean it was a big game they needed to win it but maybe after the last season maybe they just felt that it was best to save things I don't know <laughs> it's just a theory but it's better having a theory than wondering why Coaches are doing certain things and just thinking that the coach is an idiot. <laughs> That's what I think anyway. So, you know, look, TLDR, what's what's he getting at here, John? What is he getting at? Um, is this numbskull saying that Melbourne being tired was the only reason Geelong won the game? No, I am not saying that. But I believe that this game was never going to be the spectacle that it was built up to be. And due to the things I've just said, this game was completely different to how it might have been anywhere else in the season. I think Geelong were excellent. And even if there were some things that went against Melbourne on the night, that's not Geelong's fault. And they can only do what they did against the opposition that is put in front of them. As mentioned, they pressured, tackled hard, they moved the ball beautifully. As a neutral, I loved the way that they exploited Melbourne with that. They, they, run, they were sort of doing some running carry out to the back flank of the 50 and then bringing it back inboard. But they had a lot of good results from that ball movement. So brilliant results for the Cats. Uh, do we want to read into it a whole lot though? well <laughs> you make the call. Uh, I think you take the positives out of that game definitely uh, but that's that's all I think at this point. whether or not it's a true representation of both of these teams, uh, time will tell and we'll see <laughs> we'll see in about a month or two. Uh, but I do feel like this could be a game that you look back on and say it was pivotal to how the ladder finished but is it gonna be pivotal to what ends up winning? At all. I, I'm not so sure about that right now. That's all we have time for this week on Footy Time. Yeah, it's it's getting real. There's six weeks to go and anything could happen. Strap yourselves in. We've got some great footy coming up, I think. And yeah, it's going to be one of the best finishes to a season I think we've seen in years. Yeah, a few quick notes. I think that the Rising Stars wrapped up. I think they may as well just give it to Nick Dacos right now. There's no one that's going to catch him on that. And I also just wanted to pay tribute to former Melbourne Premiership great Noel McMahon, who unfortunately passed away today at the age of 95. Noel was a captain in the 1955 and 56 Premierships, I believe. Uh, Yeah, champion of the Melbourne Footy Club. Also had a short coaching stint at South Melbourne in the early 60s, I think. But yeah, Noel will definitely be missed. And I guess we're all grateful that he did get to see the D's breakthrough to win that flag last year. Um, that one certainly made him smile. In the meantime, yeah, hopefully your team does well this week. Some big games going on. Uh, we'll be back next week with more footy time. Bye for now.